What is up, Combo Nation? We are here with yet another episode of Combo's Court, episode 455 to be exact. Thank you to everyone who tunes into the show across the globe, man. We're here. Today's episode, Andrew Claudio of Knicks Film School joins in to talk Knicks basketball and more. Just a fantastic conversation with Andrew Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Luca, don't do it to him. Claudio of Knicks Film School, executive producer and pregame show host. What do you like better, uh, producing or uh, talking basketball? Ooh, great question to start. Um, I only that I only ask the great questions, Andrew. Remember, so that. they both have their benefits. Um, you get to meet new people on the pregame show. You get to talk ball, like you said on the pregame show. You get some perspectives as well. But um, I'm a director at heart, like I'm a producer at heart in the sense of I like to to build things. And you get more freedom to do that when you're behind the scenes. So um, it's, it's a cop out. But if you wanted me to pick one, I'd probably pick producing while I do enjoy the pregame pod as well. They're both more fun when the Knicks are playing like they have been this season, right? When when the Knicks are more fun. <laughs> exactly. Yes. OK. I mean, things have been fun with the Knicks, but there has been some sad news today with the passing of Willis Reed. Um, I'll always remember now, I, I don't remember as if I was there. I mean, it was before my time, but just him after an injury, getting on this court and just scoring those two or three buckets and galvanizing that Knicks championship team. Um, you know, I, I talked about before how every bucket, I think I've talked about this on the pod before, how every bucket is not created equal. And, you know, when you get uh, a few points like that, that kind of equaled 50 or 60 points for that Knicks team, right? Like that was just incredible what he did for that team. Um, what kind of legacy do you think Willis Reed will leave behind him? You know, it's interesting. I'm I'm 34, so he's he's way before my time as far as his playing days are concerned. Um, but when you become a young fan of a team, you're told about the legends that came before. You know, like I'm I'm a Mets yeah. fan as well, and my grandma like sang the praises of Tom Seaver and the 69 Mets. And then my dad told me about all the 86 Mets and, you know, the Daryl Strawberries, the Gary Carters and the Keith Hernandez's of the world. And when I became a Knicks fan, there were two names that stood out above the rest amongst the quote unquote old heads that I needed to make sure that I remembered and I cherished. And it's Willis Reed and it's Walt Clyde Frazier. And with Clyde, I'm able to remember and appreciate him pretty much every home game because he's doing color commentary for MSG. So with Willis, there's not as much of an intimate relationship with the younger generation. There's just legend. And I think that's the, the both the good part and some partially kind of the, the part that I'm I'm a bittersweet about that I didn't you know, know more about him in the sense of like what he was like off the court, what his personality was like, never really got to see him play much other than a couple of highlights or um, 
some some back 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 in my day uh, uh youtube videos um or some msg um I'm trying to think of what they call it, like the flashback games, you know, back right, in the day. Right. Uh, hardwood classics, baby. Yeah. Hardwood classics when they put those on MSG. So, you know, as far as the the on the court presence is concerned, it's a, it's a little foggy. I will just say, like, he's the only Nick to ever win an MVP. He's the only Nick to ever win a finals MVP in which he did it twice. He was um, the, the, the first ever second round pick to win an MVP as well, which they had like 12 teams back then. So the second round was like the 16th pick. But um, you mentioned the moment at the garden that remains legendary to this day. And that's the thing that, that, you know, that builds legends. Cause he, like you said, had four points and really didn't contribute much to that game seven, but his teammates seeing him come out on the court for that moment, um, well, it's still a moment that lives in uh, in Nick's history and in that building's history. And, you know, I, I we just did the Knicks just did the uh, celebration of the 1973 team about a month ago. And uh, he wasn't able right. to make it um, because of some of his health health complications. But uh, I'm really glad he at least got to see his teammates be um, appreciated and given their flowers. Um, and it's it's even more special now that he was able to see that because little did we know the time was short so uh yep. a legend in nick's history that has gone way too soon yep thoughts and prayers to the family rest in peace from one nick's legend to another i wanted to talk about this and hear your thoughts on it before we get to current nick's basketball i was in the yeah. garden I, w- I was in the garden for uh big east I was in for the conference tournament i see patrick ewing coaching georgetown unfortunately he um he was fired recently but I just have this feeling when I'm in the garden and Patrick Ewing is there that he doesn't get the credit he deserves. It's kind of like he's just another guy walking around. Now, I don't want people to like be throwing flowers at him or like bothering him. Obviously, he's coaching a basketball game. But I feel like they're like with Patrick Ewing, he carried the franchise for so long. You have to have a little tribute for him or something, right? I know it's college basketball and it's not the NBA, but I don't know. I just feel like there's not enough respect for Pat. Maybe part of it is that he's not as involved as some of the other past Knicks. Like, obviously, we see Clyde talking basketball, right, as you pointed out so eloquently. Um, we see Allen Houston with the G League team and everything he does. Larry Johnson's been on my podcast, and I know he's heavily involved with the Knicks. Latrell Sprewell we see around. We don't really see Pat with the Knicks. There was that time where he was uh, walking around the garden. He said security was stopping him. Like, that was another indicator to me that, like, he's not getting the respect he deserves. Do you feel Pat gets the respect he deserves? So this is the tough part with being the Georgetown head coach. You're all in. You're that. You're going on recruiting trips. You're watching film of 18, 19, 21-year-olds and trying to make sure they get better. And you kind of you kind of step out of that spotlight that uh, a generation of Knicks fans might not get to understand the legend of Patrick Ewing. Um, I imagine like the last big Knicks moment that we saw him was the lottery in 2019 when he sat up there as the Knicks were, were pulled. It was pulled up that they were the three pick in the 2019 NBA draft. And I imagine now that he no longer has responsibilities to the University of Georgetown as a head coach, um, we might see him pop up a little bit more as far as respect is concerned. Uh, 1999, I guess 2000, his last year with the team was 23 years ago. So a 21-year-old Knicks fan was not alive for Patrick Ewing in a Knicks uniform. So it's just, it comes with the territory. Like, I'm a big 
big mellow guy. I don't know if this is going to be on video, but like over my shoulder is a Carmelo Anthony jersey. That is the the guy for a lot of the younger generation. Um, and then, you know, this this new team of Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson and R.J. Barrett and R- Mayo Quigley, they're building uh, probably uh, etching their names in stone and some some young, impressionable Knicks fans as well. But as far as Patrick is concerned, it's 90s were a long time ago. So as far as respect, I I give it to him. I think people my age give it to him. But, you know, it, it's just been a while. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Brunson, you mentioned Carmelo. Um, Stephon Marbury was another great player, in my opinion. But, you know, when it comes to Carmelo and Steph, it did feel like the Knicks, Carmelo was great, and he actually had a great season with them, with Woodson, right? They made it, you know, they did well in the playoffs. 54 wins and they were the two seed, yeah. Exactly. People kind of forget about that. Um, he was He had his success here. But, you know, there was some sort of name chasing going on, right? Like, these guys were established players, and it didn't feel like that as much with Brunson. Um how great of a move was this for the Knicks comparing to some of the other free J agency signings over the year, like Carmelo Anthony, Stefan Marbury, and some of the other, you know, Amari Stoudemire, some of the other great Knicks we've seen in the past. So let's go through them one at a time. So Stefan Marbury was the first big splash of the Isaiah Thomas era. Right. I remember when it happened being like really thrilled actually. And then little did I know that Isaiah Thomas had no idea what he was doing. And then the next four or five years were going to be some of the most tumultuous in the franchise's history. Um, but in the moment, it wasn't terrible. And look, Starberry's got a, a, an interesting legacy because like I was I was in my teens during the, the 2000s. So like you did have a guy. He just was on this roster that that just didn't make sense. Like Eddie Curry for two first round picks was part of that roster. And then we're going to trade for Zach Randolph and we're going to trade for Jamal Crawford. And all of these moves in a vacuum were okay. But um, I digress. The Isaiah Thomas era, we does not need uh, <laughs> uh, retelling, you know? So you're, not say, you're saying, I feel like uh, Steph Marbury kind of gets like the good stats, bad team type of thing. So you're saying it wasn't his fault. It I don't so much. There was so much rot in the walls and so much going on. Yeah, I I don't think it was Steph's fault. I thought Steph was great. You know, I listen, I I'm somebody who that when I got my first ever full time job, there was a Stephen Berry's across the street. And I went. Oh, yeah. The the, the single pair of Starberries that was thirteen dollars. And, and you could buy like 10 of them for, yeah, for- <laughs> exactly. So there was like, I had the whole Starberry collection and they were comfortable and you were could they 13 or $7, whatever they were. Okay. Okay. I had okay. all of them is my point. The all whites, <laughs> the all blacks, the orange and blues, the every single version of Starberries I had. And like, I appreciate, like I was younger, so I probably didn't don't know as much of maybe an older Knicks fan might've had the perspective of Stefan Marbury, but as far as I'm concerned, he's good with me. Um, Amari Stoudemire, I, I he probably gets. It's funny. I probably give him less credit than he deserves, and he, he probably does get more credit than he deserves. It's weird to say this because I think the only reason he came to the Knicks and Amin El Hassan, who is one of the NBA talking heads, talks about this a lot with that offseason, that they were not willing to go to. I believe. I believe back then it was four years was the was the full thing. They were not willing to go to four years on him. The only team willing to go to four years on an Amari Stoudemire contract was the Knicks. So while he gets looked at as like the guy who didn't run from the grind, who took on the pressures of New York City, my perspective is like 
he went to the only place willing to give him a fourth guaranteed season. You know, like the Knicks needed to add somebody in that summer. And I think the other part that is not his fault is that offseason is the, the the decision happened. LeBron, Wade and Bosch go to Miami. The Knicks, after two years of clearing cap space to get that, get Amari Stoudemire. Again, not his fault. Um, the mellow. I, listen, I'm a mellow defender. I probably can't be asked about this rationally. Um, I personally think he's the fourth greatest player in Knicks history. Um, I also recognize that the team building around him was not the best. I do think he had something to do with that in um, in ways he could uh, mesh his game with other players. You need to get specific people to play around Carmelo. I digress. I call it a success. Then you get Jalen Brunson, which in my opinion, and the jury's still out, hasn't even been a full season yet, hasn't even been a playoff game yet, is the best free agent acquisition in Knicks history. Um, When you add in what he's done for Julius Randle, turning him back into, like taking the pressures off so he doesn't have to do everything and turning him back into an all-NBA player, we're talking less than 24 hours after Randle had 57 points in a game. Um, What he's done for the locker room, what the family aspect of this this version of the Knicks, where it's like we're all from Kentucky, we're all from Villanova, we're all part of the Leon Rose family tree. This is a family affair, and you know, win or lose, ups and downs, we're all gonna be part of this, and we're all gonna succeed. It's why, like, it's why the season has hasn't been like tampered down by expectations because we're all just kind of enjoying and like liking these people, and Jalen Brunson. While he didn't make the all-star team and probably shouldn't, while he's probably not going to make all NBA and like, I can't say probably should, but should be getting some consideration, like won't walk away with any hardware this season. But man, talk about like giving you optimism for the future. I like cannot wait to watch this for the next four years. And even more to the point that you got him away from Dallas this team that you've had to deal with for the last four years since the Porzingis trade. And you're able to, to win that trade as well as like take one of their guys away is it makes it even more, more sweet, you know? Yeah. And um, if Kyrie leaves, man, it's really a disaster for the Mavericks because they gave up some of their depth. It was a mistake, not signing Brunson. And then you're left with nobody to play alongside with Luke, unless you do something really creative in the off season. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Julius Randle. I mean, the Brunson effect is real. You mentioned it. But is there anything else you see that kind of changed the way he's been playing? From like that pandemic year where like it was like half the season with no crowd was amazing. And then he obviously had his struggles last year. What do you see about his game that has been different for you? Look, man, like he's been playing great, but still some of the stuff he does like breaks my basketball brain. <laughs> I remember watching like a game about two months ago. I forgot what game it was, but like he'll be dribbling in transition, have an easy pass up then over dribble, but then still find the pass. He'll have like a guy who's way smaller than him in the post could just go right up, but then he'll get into like two step backs and then score anyway and make a tough shot. Like he makes his life tougher at times, but he's still playing great. What are you seeing from him this season? And do you see what I see as well when it comes to, he just, it's like confusing the way he plays sometimes. So I'll start with the second part. I do see what you see and it drives yeah. me mad too. Um, yeah. His, his live ball turnovers are, the ones that get under your skin, um, his some of his isolation decisions, he gets tunnel yeah. vision. We call it run the jewels when he just decides to like, all right, 
clear out. I'm taking it personally to like what the, the Clipper game was the worst one because I'm going to take it personally. This one on one matchup against Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Yeah, probably, yeah, right. probably not going to go your way. And it showed in the box score. Um, But like I it's think- funny you say that it might be it might be because he's trying to prove something. So that's the part that this season, it actually, I think he's done a better job of. And I think it's look, I don't know him. I have just it's just from watching him from the past four years. The thing that has stood out to me the most, and he's talked about this in in, in interviews and in some post game comments, his processing speed is not the greatest. Like when he gets a double onto him, we saw this in the Atlanta series too. Who, who's ago. talked about this? He's talked about this. He's talked about, well, he hasn't said his processing speed, but he's, oh. he, he needs to make quick decisions. It's why he doesn't okay. do well in man to man offense. He needs to switch. You know, he doesn't do well in his zone. Like he needs to be someone that's switching a lot because it doesn't give him time to think. And he even said last night in reacting to the 57 point game, like what was different today? He was like, I just, I wasn't thinking much. I was just doing and that's been something that I think they've done a lot better this season in an offense that, while it has a lot of isolation, I think because Brunson is the focal point, Julius then doesn't have, like, he's done a lot of catch and shoot. He's been taking a ton of more threes. They've really emphasized, like Fred Katz said the article right before the All-Star break, that Johnny Bryant said to him, like, don't think, the like, catch and shoot. You're a three-point shooter. Like, we're going for volume this year. You're going to miss a ton this year. But you're gonna make, and we're gonna go for val for volume instead. We we talk when we're when we're watching him. One of our contributors, Mensa, says he processes things like a Windows ninety five. It's almost like when he is doubled, he needs to look at the one player, then look at the other player, and then it clicks. Oh, I'm double teamed, and then he passes out of a double. So. I think when you get him in some quicker actions, um, you're able to really take advantage of his talent because then he makes the quick move, goes downhill, and it like quick, decisive Julius Randle is one of the most unstoppable players in the sport. And what they've done, beside from aside from the three point shooting being an emphasis this year, his entire shot diet is in the paint at the rim or three pointers. You know, with yeah. some like long twos here and there, but like the long twos is what he feasted on in the week here season this year's three point shooting and free throw shooting, which is, you know, going by modern day shot diets is like the best you could possibly have. So, yeah, look, I've been playing basketball a long time. So I have perspective and he's an all-star in the best league in the world. So, you know, kudos to him, but that makes total sense. What you're saying about the processing, because it just, I think you could equate processing to feel for the game. And it just feels like something is off with the feel for the game, even though he's like truly been effective. So I wonder if he knows that though. Like, if, if he's like, I don't process the game as great maybe as like some of the top other top players in the league. Because I feel like in his head, like his attitude towards the game, and you don't even you don't become an all star unless you think you're one of the best players in the league. So I wonder if he actually does realize that. So you're saying he does realize this? I think they they clearly watch a ton of film and. Like you notice it the more and more you watch Knicks games like, oh, they were doing this three day, three games ago. Now they're doing this instead, you know, like for a while this season, one of our, our film guys, Benji Ritholtz, was saying that the focus of their offense was to get to the paint and take the first available floater. And you, what they were missing was these wide open guys on the wing, Quentin Grimes, RJ Barrett, Julius at times, Emmanuel quickly, like, they're they're going for the first available floater and it might be contested. It it might not even be a, a bad shot. It's just you're missing a higher point value shot on the wing. 
And then you see later on in the season, oh, now they're hitting the guys on the wing. They're clearly like noticing that they're missing higher quality shots in their offense as it's currently built. And it's made their offense more dynamic. This is where Josh Hart's come into play because he gets into the paint even even stronger and, and quicker. And he has the nose for like knowing, OK, who's on the wing right now? Is there someone on this this corner, that corner? I wish he would pull the trigger a little more when he's on the wing because he doesn't really take that many threes. But he's a 55 percent three point shooter since he's been here. Not that I think that's going to last. Um, so, yeah, I I think they've tried to it's not as much of a ball movement heavy offense with Julius. I do think there is a, a lot of isolation. I just he's said it like he when he makes quicker decisions, he has less time to think, less time to make mistakes. And that, I think, is the best version of Julius that we've seen. He's also just flatly like making shots he didn't make last year, which is he has a tough shot maker. You like, can't a, test, take that away a testament to his talent that like last night was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. That 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 third quarter where he missed one shot seven and he was like the mellow playbook where he was like the the spin spin on the baseline and fade away it's like that is a, a textbook carmelo anthony jump shot right there and yeah like it's it's contested it's not necessarily a shot that the defense doesn't want to give up and he's making it um so yeah i think i think it's half they've dedicated to a more analytically pleasing shot diet as well as he's just flat out been better this year you know you spoke to the josh hart signing and i think we often talk about as a broader nba community if that makes sense like player fit with other players on the team but i think coach player fit is so important and josh hart just seems like the perfect tibbs guy that's why i loved it like i think cam reddish is going to be a good nba player still but right when he signed i said on my podcast or on some live show on youtube or maybe on b-ball breakdown or wherever i said it that like that was not a good fit because Cam Reddish is not that go hard type player, right? Like he doesn't have that Josh Hart mentality, even though I believe in him. And I just love this fit with Josh Hart and Tibbs. What have you seen from him so far? And do you believe the Josh Hart signing like changes their outlook for the playoffs in any way? Uh, the playoffs. Well, OK, that's a totally different question because. I don't know what to think of the playoffs anymore. This team was at an 82 win pace for the first nine games of the Josh Hart experience. <laughs> um, so I don't like when, when, since Brunson's been back, they've lost one game where Josh Hart and Jalen Brunson play the whole time. And it took a Torian Prince, like eight for eight, most second, most efficient game in NBA history performance to beat them. Um, so like, I, as far as the playoffs are concerned, I absolutely think they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. I'm not a Knicks fan that's like, they're going to make the conference finals. This is a legitimate contender. But I would pick them in a series against Cleveland. I think Boston is there for the taking, whether it's the Knicks, whether it's Miami. Boston's just, been looking shaky, yeah. I, and I, a lot of it has to do, I, I listen, take the personal uh, uh, shortcomings aside from whatever happened with Udoka, he clearly instilled something in that team last year that is not there this season. So this and it that, wore and it wore, It seems like whatever was there worn off. So as a now, result, right? yeah. like all of yeah. the good habits that were instilled in that team. And look, let's just be honest about the Celtics run last season for very close game. That buzzer beater game one against the Nets. It's a sweep, but let's not pretend like they dominated that series a seven game series that they were trailing three, two, and then needed the best per, best game of Jason Tatum's career in game six. And then 22, three pointers in game seven 
to beat the 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 Bucks. And then that Heat series, they lost two games in Boston Garden, and then they were a three pointer away from not even making the finals and having a collapse they've been trying to have the entire playoffs. But what they end up being is the defending Eastern Conference champion. So they get that respect. I think the margins for them being out in the first round were actually pretty close. And this season, we're seeing how close the margins are with the Celtics. I think their ceiling is probably the highest of any team in the league. Their floor is also the lowest of any contender that exists. So I think the Warriors might still have the highest ceiling. I mean, I don't know what's happening with Wiggins with that kind of change. Highest ceiling, yes. I you're, you're right in that sense, but like of the contenders, like I could see the Celtics winning the title. I could see the Celtics losing in the first round. The, the biggest Warriors, var- the biggest variance. Exactly. Saying. The variance as far as the difference between what I think they could possibly be is is bigger. The Warriors, they're going to go in as like a six or seven seed. And this whole thing with them not being able to win on the road, I have no idea. And look, there's also a an availability. I have no idea what's going on with Andrew Wiggins. I'm not going to speculate what's going on with Andrew Wiggins. But that is a thing. Like he was their second best player through that run last season. So yeah, bottom you, line, he's not there right now. And we when don't know you don't happening. have him, I yeah. just like that. There's no the one thing you don't have with the Celtics is the coach. So I don't like say so he since he's not coming back. I also have to wonder if you're going to be able to duplicate what you did the last season. So um, um, listen, that's the Celtics. I think the Knicks can be a force to be reckoned with. Yes, the Josh Hart thing makes their second unit incredible and a force to be reckoned with. Um, and yeah, I, I think the Knicks will be a tough out, whoever has to do it in the postseason. Emmanuel, quickly, to me, I look at him as one of those modern NBA basketball players because I think he's a guy, no pun intended, gets his game off quickly, could <laughs> dribble, pass it, shoot it. You could just see him playing with other star players. It, it's like almost effortless, right? Like he fits around Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, or any other kind of isocentric player in a really like seamless way, you know, just gets his game off quickly. What have you made of his season and how big has his leap been from last season to this season? Oh, he's he he's officially like I know it takes a while to earn like the Thibodeau trust. And like there was the rumors in the beginning of the season that the Knicks were taking calls on Emmanuel quickly. And from everything I've heard, he played himself out of trade talks. He turned himself into a piece that. You just you you can't imagine like not having him on your team. And look, the the contract extension he's about to get this summer. I I think Knicks fans started off being like, okay, like four for 52. Like that's a a reasonable number for Manuel quickly. Then as the season went along, it's like, all right, maybe maybe we're looking at like four for 80. You know, there's no way he could be making less than Evan Fournier. And now, since he's probably going to win the sixth man of the year, is easily their most impactful player when you look at all the lineup data. I know Mitchell Robinson has a case for that as well. But honestly, lately, Isaiah Hartenstein's been about even when it comes to the, the center rotation. Like, there's the no playmaking. Way. This guy's there's a no point center. Off. Well, yeah, this guy's like a point center now. The point center aspect of it is there. And the fact that you can kind of spread the floor. With Isaiah Hartenstein, he's not going to yeah, yeah. shoot anything, but he's not in the dunker spot anytime someone gets past the first right. line of defense. So like I was watching it last night, Julius was settling, not settling for threes, but he was staying away from getting to the rim because go bears down there. So he was like hitting all these jump shots. As a result, the moment Hartenstein came in, the Knicks are going to the rim. And I think down the stretch, what made it so tough is like I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent, but like Minnesota committed to basically saying like, OK, we are just 
Gobert's going to protect the rim. If you hit a three, fine. Like if Isaiah Hartenstein hits a three on us, whatever. We're now going to commit to protecting the rim down the stretch. I digress. Um, Emmanuel, quickly, every single lineup that the Knicks have is a positive because he's in it, at least. At least the positive lineups that really stick out. Um, his shooting, the fact that that's come around this year, um, like the first two months, I was a little concerned that maybe this is just like an inefficient guy that's really impactful on defense. And that's the last part. His his perimeter defense, the way he anticipates passing lanes, um, his ability, like his rebounding on the defensive glass is like important for a guard his size. And like Bill Simmons talks about this and how he judges guys like, can I watch you? Can you be part of an NBA finals rotation? And while that's a really high standard on how to evaluate everybody in the league, Emmanuel quickly is a guy you could have on an NBA finals rotation. Not saying it's going to be the Knicks this year, not going all the way there. He's very clearly a winning player. And, you know, the 25th pick in the draft. Can't believe the Knicks actually got him, you know? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the word lineups. Um, not what you think Tibbs would do, but what do you feel like the lineup should be when we get to the playoffs? Which lineup? and how and, and how deep how deep the rotation should be with which players is a better way to put it. Oh, I think we're we're seeing what the lineup is going to end up being. It's going to go. You don't think it'll shorten because a lot of teams shorten the rotation when it comes to the playoffs. I know the Knicks are deeper now. Right. I mean, they're better. They have more good players than they used to in the past. But so you think this is what it'll look like? I think they've already shortened it to nine, you know, and I think I think a lot of coaches go to eight. They do. I think the Knicks. Have, I, I think the Knicks can go nine deep, though. That's the thing. Okay. Maybe if Quentin yeah. Grimes is having some sophomore moments, you could do it. I don't think they're ever going to get to a place where R.J. Barrett's not playing playoff games. I do think. Like his ceiling is actually what's going to decide what they do in the playoffs, because like there's. Like there's a 31 point RJ Barrett playoff game where it's like, oh, this is the RJ game that flipped the series. I mean, you if know? you if you have Jalen playing like Jalen and Julius playing like an all star, and then you get that kind of RJ, man, yeah. dangerous. So yeah. as a result, like RJ's actually might be the deciding factor, the fringe factor of like how far this team goes in the postseason. But yeah, I, the only possible thing I could see them going to is. But like maybe Grimes sits and they go to eight or maybe Grimes sits and they go to Deuce McBride. But you're already starting to see like RJ Barrett's minutes are down. He's not closing games because Emmanuel quickly is. Quentin Grimes is a first quarter and a third quarter player. And Josh Hart is closing out the rest of the half when he comes in for Quentin Grimes. So um, I already think they're starting to show you what the playoff rotation is going to look like. And look, I, it's a good problem to have when you have a lot of guys that could potentially contribute to winning. And, um, you know, maybe I, I'm curious to see how he manages it as well. You know, two part question to finish. Okay. What is the absolute best case scenario? Realistically, you could see this team finishing this year and what archetype of player should they be looking for in the off season? Ooh, Ooh, best case scenario. Realistically is the second round. A six game okay. series against Milwaukee, and then you lost because Giannis. You know, okay. Like, I think the, my the Bucks were my preseason pick to win the title, and I think they're still my preseason pick to win the title. Um, honestly, the best case scenario. See, I, you say realistically. Can I go on realistically just off the yeah, grid for a second? Why not? Why not? So, say the Sixers get the one seed. Yeah, say the Sixers get the one seed. Knicks win their first round matchup against Donovan Mitchell. 
Knicks win their second round matchup against Embiid and Harden. Harden goes back to to you to Houston. Doc Rivers is fired, and Joel Embiid asks out, and the Knicks have this treasure trove of assets. That's the unrealistic, crazy path for the Knicks to get a superstar on Joel Embiid. Um, I think the Knicks making the second round would be looked at as a positive anyway. Like they can get swept in the second round, honestly. And I'd be like, they won a round. Like they haven't done that since 2013. They've done it once since 2000. Um, this is this is step in the right direction. And this core is all guys that are under the age of 28. So that's the best case scenario as far as who they can add. Well, uh, not, not even who the archetype of player. What type of player do they need? The, I mean, you could you could add a name if you want. You know, well, no so problem. the name that I think is on my list and anybody that's an R.J. Barrett stand, please don't get in my mentions. Um, <laughs> but the OG Ananobi, uh, I don't know if it's a pipe dream. I know that the Knicks. I feel are, like he could. I feel like he could help twenty nine teams. Right. So like that's the, Raptors, the yeah. <laughs> like that's the guy. It's a small yeah. forward. It's a wing that. Yeah. Um, you replace the R.J. Barrett spot in the starting rotation, the starting lineup, whatever. Like the, that's the guy, you know. O.G. Ananobi coming in for R.J. and then he's a, a defensive guy. He can he's he's a shooter. He can spread the floor a little bit more than R.J. can. Um, doesn't need really to have plays called for him. He can like create a little bit, but um, it's really the RJ Barrett spot in the rotation that if you're going to look to upgrade and it's not like to a superstar, um, that's the the spot I'm looking at. Like that type of player where you're getting a little more consistent shooting, a little bit more efficient across the board in his splits. And look, there's a world where RJ Barrett's that player and I'm rooting for that world to exist. Um, but as of now, that's the spot I'm eyeing backup power forward, like the Obi Toppin minutes. I'd love Obi to go someplace else so he can play and not just be Julius Randle's 10 to 14 minute backup. But yeah. like, if you wanted to upgrade, I don't even know if that's necessarily an upgrade, just somebody that is better fitted to be a 14 minute player, you know, and not like the guy you took with the eighth pick in the draft two years ago. Yeah. Not a young player you're trying to develop. Yeah. yeah. Like Melo yeah. could have been that this year. Like Melo go play 12 minutes. And honestly, you're getting the same shot diet as Julius Randle at this point. So maybe that'd be better. However, the way that Josh Hart has kind of activated <laughs> Obi Toppin in transition. I'm actually yeah. okay with those. That's what minutes. I'm saying. Like, that's the difference between him and Melo. It's that he's changing things mm-hmm. when it comes to pace. Right. Right. So, yeah, it's why, like, the my, my selfishness of, like, I'd keep Obi in the sense of, like, the, the, the pace that you're talking about and how you can get out and transition and kind of run is, like, great. I also think for Obi, his yeah. next, he needs to go to a place where he's not playing 12 backup minutes a game, you know? So totally agree. We'll see what totally happens. agree. Andrew, great stuff. You're always welcome back on the show. Where can we find you? Social media? You can find else? me uh, on the Twitter uh, at Andrew. On J. the Claudio, Twitter. <laughs> on Andrew J. Claudio underscore. Um, I'm at Nick's Film School. Um, all the platforms, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, you name it. Um, we have a YouTube channel. We have a podcast. We have a newsletter. We have um, a Patreon. We have all of the things. But uh, with all, we're creating a ton of content, and uh, you know, watching the Knicks and reacting to the Knicks and previewing Knicks games, and hopefully enjoying them as this season that's been pretty fun continues. And you have a link tree, right, attached to your Twitter. We have we a link go- tree on our yeah. our Twitter that has yeah. all of the things attached to it. So yeah, sounds great. And Andrew, shop. I oh, that's I'll get yelled at if I don't mention that we have a merch store. Okay, go if you okay. want to get Nick's Film School merch, you can find it there as well. 
That's a sweatshirt right there in the back, right? That this is the the KFS hoodie that was magic two years ago. It's a long story, but yes, now it's still and and enshrined behind me in my little studio. Nice. You're always welcome back on the show, Andrew. Thank you so much for taking the time and talk soon. Yes, thank you, Andrew, for having me. Anytime. There it was. Yet another episode of Combo's Court. Big shouts to Andrew for joining in. Big shouts to everyone who tunes in to Combo's Court across the globe. Punch down on that subscribe button if you haven't already. And be on the lookout for episode four, five, six. Combo out.